Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. Holy Spirit, you are the one who opens the Word of God to us. It becomes life when you reveal it. We don't want information. We don't want education. We want transformation. And we pray that you would come and your Word would be like a sharp two-edged sword to every one of us. I, I, I ask you for this for me. And that we would live and be strengthened by your Word. I pray for the grace to speak so that we hear you and not me. In Jesus' name, amen. We learned in our study of the law of Moses that the purpose of the Ten Commandments is to teach us how to love. Do you remember that? First, to love God with all our heart, soul, and might, and then to love our neighbor as ourselves. Jesus, Paul, make it absolutely clear that the purpose of the law of God, the Ten Commandments as well as all of his laws, were to teach us how to love. And there were two things, what were they? To teach us to love God and to teach us to love our neighbor. That's what it is. It's, it's lessons in how to love one another. Lessons in how to love the Lord. Uh, they're not intended to be some kind of rules just to uh, like hoops to jump through or something to drive us along with a whip. They're meant to be ways of learning to love. Considering these commandments as a whole, if you look at all ten commandments... We see that the first four focus on loving God, and the final six focus on loving our neighbor. Today, we're going to look more deeply at the first two. These are, you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourself an idol. Let's say those two commandments out loud. You shall have no other gods before me, you shall not make for yourself an idol. In order to understand them better, the Ten Commandments, it's helpful to paraphrase verses 1 through 11. God's message in these verses is this. Now, before I read the paraphrase, let's read the verses. In Exodus 20, verse 1. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands that, by that he means, and I know that because he says it again and, and has the whole phrase in it in Deuteronomy, thousands of generations. So he says, when I'm angry, I dis- uh, I, I'll discipline you up to three and four generations. And that indeed he did, if you recall, with the exile. They were 70 years in exile. He says, I'll, I'll, I'll deal with you in discipline to cause you to repent. But he says, if you'll walk obediently with, with me... I will, my blessings, loving kindness are my promised blessings from the covenant. 
My promised blessings will be upon thousands of generations, meaning right to the end of the age, I would never stop blessing you as long as you love me and, and walk in my ways. To those who love me and keep my commandments, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God, and in it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or female servant, or your cattle, or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and the sea and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. And therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, if you would, let's back, go back to the discussion guide and let's I'm going to read that paraphrase of what I just read to you uh, from the scripture. Here's the way I would paraphrase what he said. I have already, poured my already proved my love for you, my power, and my faithfulness by delivering you from Egypt and bringing you safely here. And let me just stop at that point. He has proven his love. He has proven his power. He has proven his faithfulness. I mean, what more does he have to do but deliver two million people from the, the most powerful empire on earth? Nothing comparable at that time. And so you have this incredible empire that holds them as slaves. And not only do they get freed, but they walk out with a high hand. In other words, defiantly and proud. They walk out in ranks, militarily assembled. They walk out having plundered Egypt, where all the people gave them their jewelry, valuable clothing, money. They poured much resource into their arms as they go marching out. That's a real deliverance. Now, how do you pull that one off? And then... And then when Egypt finally wakes up and realizes what they've done and sends an army to bring them back or destroy them in the desert, God destroys the elite forces of the Egyptian army by drowning them in the Red Sea. And then when they run out of water, he turns a pond of, 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 of poisonous water into sweet. He causes water to gush out of a rock enough to feed, uh, give drink to two million people. When they're hungry, he causes carbohydrate goo to form on the ground every morning. I mean, it's amazing. That was not a low-carb diet, by the way. But they had lots of exercise, and so there's no problem. So he says, what do I need to do? I've proven my power can save, that I'm faithful when, you, when I'm there when you need me, and that I love you with a remarkable love. He says, therefore, as we enter into this covenant, I'm asking these things of you. All right? Now, he says, I'm asking you to marry me. I wait for a response to just see. That's a pretty shocking statement, isn't it? In effect, that's what he's doing. He is asking them to marry him. The kind of things he asks of them is the same things that a husband and a wife pledge to one another at an altar. Listen to this. That is to love me, to be loyal to me, to treat me respectfully, and to regularly spend time in personal fellowship with me. That's the first four commandments I just read. To love me, to be loyal to me, to treat me respectfully, and to spend time with me. Wouldn't you say that's a recipe for a good marriage? 
right there. He says, I'm asking you to enter into this kind of relationship with me. I warn you, if you promise to do so and then don't, I will react like a wounded spouse. I'll react with jealousy. I'll react with emotion. I'm going to get you. <laughs> and I'll punish you until you repent. But if you continue to love me, be loyal to me, show me respect and fellowship with me, I will pour on you the blessings I promised generation after generation. In other words, until the end of time. When we realize what God is saying in these verses, it is amazing how tender and vulnerable he was being toward Israel. Don't you see that? He's offering them his heart. This isn't some cruel kind of demands he's making. He's offering to love them and bless them and really putting his heart on his sleeve, as it were. He was being, uh, really, he should never have had to say these things in the first place because if people really love him, these things would be automatic. Verse 3 says, you shall have no other gods before me. Why must we only have one God? Well, God is entering into a relationship with us like a marriage. That's what he was looking for. He wasn't interested in, in, in some group of people just doing religious duties. He was inviting them into relationship. Remember why you were made, why you were created? There's really only one reason you draw breath. Why would God make us in the first place? Why are we here? Well, he didn't need us. He's got angels that work a lot faster and more efficiently than we do. He didn't need us to clean up the planet, you know, sweep up after the elephants or something. I mean, we're not down here as little helper bees. Why did he make us? You can see it right from the Garden of Eden. He made you to fellowship with you. He, want, he wants to know you. This loving heart of our God wants to, wants to have fellowship and exchange love with others. He is so loving, he never runs out of love, and he just can love more and more and more because he's God. It's a wonderful person. He made you a person because he's a person. You have emotions because he has emotions. You have a mind because he has a mind. You have a will because he has a will. He made you in his image so that he could love you and you could love him. That's the whole purpose of all of this. And so it's, it's right in keeping. He says, Israel, if you will simply love me, show me respect, spend time with me, I will bless you and care for you generation after generation after generation, your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren. This blessing will never run out of power. But I'll just care for you and prosper you right to the end of time. It is a love, this kind of love he's asking for, is based on choices we make. Let me say something about this because I'm going to talk a good deal about your power to choose. And there's some people who say, I don't have a power to choose. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. It was given to you. Now, some of us have fallen into patterns of becoming victims and of yielding up our power to choose and feeling that we're nothing but slaves. But when you come to God, you may be slaves to some things, but your will still is in there. If it's gone, you're not a human anymore. 
You're not a human anymore if you have no will at all. And so there's somebody in there. Even in the most, even in the most addicted, troubled person, generally when you get down to the base, there's somebody still alive in there. There's still a, a flame burning. And that's the will that God appeals to. You can only choose what you can choose, but that's all he looks for. You may not know how to get free of whatever's holding on to you. But the fact that you have this will and your will says, Father, I choose you. That's what he's looking for. It's the decision in here that makes the difference. He will then take it from there. It is the love we're to have for God is based on choices we make. Choices just like a marriage. First of all, to be loyal. When you, of all things, you promise in a marriage is to be loyal, mentally and physically. Some people say, well, I need to be loyal physically, but I don't have to be loyal mentally. Have you ever heard this business, you can look but don't touch? That's absolute blasphemy. Jesus is abundantly clear. He says, if you even lust after somebody in your heart, you have committed adultery. Adultery is meant to be mental loyalty. I mean, a marriage is meant to be mental loyalty as much as physical loyalty. When I enter into a marriage, I commit myself to one person. God's saying, I want you to love me like that. I don't just want physical loyalty. I want mental loyalty. I want you to love me with all your heart. I'm asking for that. Secondly, this kind of love that we're, we're promising is to focus on the lovely, lovely qualities and overlook the weak. When I'm, if you want to have a lasting marriage, you will... Learn the process of looking at the lovely qualities in your wife or your husband and learning to overlook the weak. When marriages are going bad, it's usually that the person is focused on the negative qualities in their spouse and overlook the good. There's a process here. It's a choice we can make. It may be a bit of a struggle, but you can choose and just say, I'm just not going there. I'm just not going there. I'm just not going there when that negative stuff comes. You can do that. And you say, well, what does that have to do with God? He's holy. I mean, surely there's nothing negative to uh, have to overlook in our relationship with God. Well, technically you're right. But practically, the fact of the matter is, things happen in life all the time that we do not understand and that make God look bad. Wouldn't you agree? There's, there are bereavements. There are crises. There are times you, you prayed and it, it apparently happened exactly opposite. There's, you can, I mean, one of the biggest problems on planet earth is people get angry with God. And so to say there's nothing that I don't need to overlook. How would a, how would a believer then walk this out of overlooking the bad with God? I'll tell you how. You come up to issues you don't understand and rather than passing judgment on God, and saying, you failed, you didn't do this, blaming him, you put it in a to-be-answered-later file. And that's a humble step. It simply says, I will not pass judgment. I don't get it. God, I'd like to. Would you, would you explain this to me when I can know it? And I find that as the years pass, he often does, and some things we may not know till heaven. But you literally choose not to pass judgment on him, 
but to put it in a to be answered later file. Just like in marriage. You simply say, I'm not looking at the negative, I'm looking at the positive. It's a love that's based on choices we make to pursue deeper understanding and relationship. You, if you're going to have a marriage, you've got to spend time together. And then not only time together, but somewhere along the line, there has to be what we might call heart talk. Where you not only, you know, they say mouth talk is just those, those mindless things you say to people in greeting. Head talk is when you discuss an issue. But heart talk is talking about how you feel and what's going on inside. And a husband and wife ought to have times of heart talk. And where there's not, when it's only head talk or, or, or less, that's where you have a real crisis brewing. There has to be some heart talk in there. And that's what God wants from us. What's this whole Sabbath thing about? He's not asking us to sort of saying, I'm going to be watching and if you move around and do any work, I'm going to nail you. I mean, it's not a game he's playing. He says, I want, give me a day, would you? Spend time with me. Enough times to quiet down your busy little minds and have heart talk with me. I'd like that once a week if I could. It is to receive certain areas in a marriage which is a love that we base on a choice and we commit to receive certain areas of fulfillment only from that person. There's areas of fulfillment we receive from friends and from our jobs and from all sorts of things. But in a marriage, there's certain things I promise I will only receive fulfillment from my wife. And anything else becomes adulterous. There's certain things she commits to that only I will fulfill in her life. God says, there's certain things in your life I only want you to come to me for. And anything else I will consider adultery. You've abandoned me. I don't want you to turn to other gods. Why does God describe himself as a jealous God? There in verse 5 he says, You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And you think, all you can think of is him sort of getting red-faced and angry. But he's telling us something about who he is. He will not tolerate competitors. You cannot have him and another God. Some of the religions of the world have just thousands and even millions of different gods. And I've been in some places in the world where where I've talked to people and, and they say, well, I'm happy to believe in Jesus, you know. I've got about a million other gods, but let's add him to the shelf. Cool, no problem here. But our God is a jealous God. And if you want him, then everyone else goes. Only he can be your God. Let me give you an illustration. Quite a number of years ago now, this is a far, far away place. Um, Not here. There was a uh, businessman who somebody in in the congregation began to bring to church and I, I, I kind of knew who he was and I, his, his father was extremely famous, the name was all over town and uh, a very fam- well-known businessman and he was taking over his father's business, he was a very powerful businessman in his own right and uh, what he was was a um, 
Is it a warlock, a male witch kind of thing? Yeah. And he would have in his home these large gatherings, these, these ga- and, and they, would, they would do uh, automatic handwriting and automatic stuff and communing with this, all sorts of spirits and divination of all kinds. It was, it was very, he was the leader of, of a group of these. And here he was coming week after week in the back of my church. After a while, I could bear it no more. And I, and I said, I got to find out. And I, and I invited him to lunch. And I am a big spender, so I took him to Wendy's. And, <laughs> and uh, not much has changed either. And, and so I, over, our, over our, our, our hamburger and our Frosty, I said, um, tell me, you've been coming to church. Do you sense the power of God here? He said, oh, yeah. He says, you've got great vibes. I said, thank you. Thank you. I said, so you really sense power. You've got a lot of power, a lot of power. I said, you know something? I said, a lot of pastors would, would maybe argue that the stuff that you've been into has no power and is just a, a, a game. But I said, I don't believe that for a minute. I know perfectly well that what you deal with is power. I say, you see power in what you do, don't you? He said, yes, I do. I said, I know that. But I'm going to say, I want to tell you something about the God I serve. He's a jealous God. He's a jealous God. And today I want you to understand that as you come toward him, you have a choice you must make. You cannot continue with your divination. You must lay those powers aside. And I don't doubt for a minute they're powers. You must lay them aside entirely. Repudiate them. And turn to the power of Jesus Christ. I said, now I'm going to tell you the power of Jesus Christ is far greater than these powers you've been dealing with. But my God is a jealous God. And he will not allow you to have both. Do you understand that? And we're going to apply this deeper and deeper here for a minute. But our God is a jealous God. He will not let us serve other gods. You say, well, we don't. That's for, for ancient times in foreign countries. The Lord takes disloyalty personally because it's about relationship, not religion. He wants us to love him. He wants us to come to him. This is like a marriage. We're promising him that in these areas of our lives, he will be our source and we will not turn to other forces, other gods, other, other sources of help. He will be our God. He wants to be loved, trusted, and related to, not manipulated, ignored, or visited occasionally as one of many gods. You can't have Jesus in your back pocket so you go to heaven and then turn to other things for your help. It's him or it's other things. But he will force you to choose. And it is my understanding of him and my relationship with him that where I put him out of the picture, if I choose other gods, he will leave that area and let me have them. That's the horror of it all. What does it mean to be someone's God? What is our gods? Well, our gods are those which we believe create us. Our God is that which gives us purpose, explains our existence. Our God is that which determines good and evil. What decides for you what's right and what's wrong? 
in America, America is tired of having God decide right and wrong, is it not? America is carting out Ten Commandments, they don't like them. America does not like God's sexual standards at all. They feel he's old-fashioned and foolish. But if God is God, one of the things that God, our God must do is decide right from wrong. So whatever God you choose will decide what's right and what's wrong. A God is that which gives us hope concerning life after death. And our God, a God is that which we rely on for help in times of trouble. Where do I turn when I'm under pressure? Where do I look for help? Who is my source that I go to when I'm in need? That will tell you where your gods are. Do other gods actually exist? I need to kind of add this for a minute. Do other gods actually exist or are they just mythical inventions made up by primitive minds trying to explain forces they see at work in the universe? Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Paul gives us a very clear answer to that question. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, beginning at verse 4. He's dealing with the Corinthian church who is, the people are going, are wanting to go to church and then they also have family pressures to go to the pagan temples, which were uh, uh, very, they would sacrifice animals and have these great feasts and, and have all kinds of sexual behavior going on. And he says here, verse 4, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols in these big services, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. How many real gods are there? Yeah. But there are many in people's minds. And there are actually reasons for it. Verse 5, For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God. And then, of course, in that God he describes two persons. He says, the Father from whom are all things, he's, our, he's this source of all creation, and we exist for him, he's the purpose of all creation, because he wanted to love us. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, in other words, he was the agent, he's the word of God who spoke the worlds into being on behalf of the Father, and we exist through him. We continue to have his power sustaining all creation. Now turn to chapter 10. And I have one more verse I want to show you. Actually, a couple. Verse 14. First of all, he says, Therefore, my, belo my beloved, flee from idolatry. Talking to Christians here. And then down to verse 19. What do I mean? That an, a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, but I say that the things which Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to whom? You see that? Indeed, there are powers behind these false gods. They're not a figment of somebody's imagination. There are other gods, small g. There is only one true God who has created us, from whom are all things. No question, there's only one real God. But are there other spiritual forces that people are dealing with and turning to and relying upon? Absolutely. Absolutely. 
He says, they sacrifice to demons and not to God, and I do not want you to become sharers in demons. So actually, it's possible for, a, for Christians, apparently, to begin to share in demons. What do we, want, what do we turn to when we need help? That's the question. That's, that's what they're doing. When you need protection, where do you turn? In your heart. When you need provision, where do you turn? In your heart. When you need peace or comfort, where do you turn? In your heart. When you are looking for purpose for your life, where do you turn? In your heart. When you look for guidance and direction on important decisions, where do you turn? In your heart. That will tell you where your gods are. If I become frightened and my solution is to go out and buy a gun, there's nothing wrong with owning a gun. I own a gun. I've had one since I was a boy. I haven't fired it in decades. <laughs> I have no idea if it still shoots. It's an old, old thing I've had since a child. Having a gun isn't wrong. But some people having a gun is definitely wrong. They have a gun for the wrong reason. Their gun is in their heart, their protection and their safety. Now listen to me. The Bible says, unless the Lord guards the city, the watchmen watch in vain. You can have a machine gun. And if God's not your defense you're not going to be safe. You see, it's where does the heart trust? The Lord sees these things. He sees the intimate things of our heart. He knows what we really trust in. Now, here's the problem. He's a jealous God. He says you'll not have others. And I have observed this. I know it to be true. When I turn to another God, the real one steps back. And so when you've got your heart trusting your gun or whatever it is, you better be a good shot. Because you're on your own, Matt Dillon. You better be tough and a quick draw because it's you versus whatever. Because God is now letting you defend yourself or let your gun defend you. How about provision? A lot of people say, well, God's my provider. And yet they really in their heart, the fact of the matter is, they're hoping to win the lottery. Now, let me tell you something. There is such a thing as luck. It is a demon. I get this question once in a while. What's wrong with going and just saying, I limited to $50. Can't I dance with a demon just a little bit? What's your point? It's fun. Get a hobby. Get a hobby. Are you bored? Why don't you volunteer at the church? I'm serious. Now you're just rationalizing. The problem is you're hoping to get ahead. You're hoping for your financial help coming from Lady Luck. 
And here's the surprising fun part of it. He's a jealous God. And so as you turn your heart to luck or pilfering at work or cheating on your taxes, if you take it in and give it to this other spirit, the true God steps back and says you're on your own. Now I'm going to tell you what smart people do. Smart people prefer the blessing of God over the fickle things that demons provide. A demon is just like a drug dealer. He'll let you win at first. Always. Drug dealer gives you free stuff at first because he's so nice. And then once you're addicted, the price goes up. And that's exactly what the devil does. Let you play a little bit. Let you win a little bit. Let's it get fun. You begin thinking, you know, I'm, I'm a lucky guy. Now where's my heart? Trusting in the blessings of God? No. Trusting in a spirit to give me luck. And what happens is the Lord says, then you're on your own. Because I'm a jealous God. You'll either love me or you'll love that demon. But I'll not let you love both. And he pulls out. And there are people who are spoiling their lives. Spoiling their blessing. Spoiling their inheritance. By toying with a demon. Peace and comfort. When there's crisis in their life. When there's stress in my life. Where do I turn? Do I run to my God for comfort? Or do I turn to other gods? Like alcohol and drugs. I'm going to tell you something. When some people are under pressure, the one thing they want is a drink. Because that's their comfort. That's their God. That's their real source of help. They may mouth another thing, but their real comfort is coming from the alcohol. And the problem is, if you turn to that one, the real one backs away. I don't think anybody in the room is foolish enough to think that alcohol is a real comfort, is a real help. Is it? It's a destructive thing that ultimately brings death. And it kills your person. And so what do I do? I'm going to tell you something. I'm talking out of, out of something I really deeply personally understand. I've had many, I've had decades of depression in my life. Now, I haven't had it, real depression for quite a while. But I have quite, I still have some severe anxiety comes over me. And there's moments I stand and I just think, boy, I want relief. I've got to get relief. And if there was a bottle that I could turn to and uncork, but you know, in my life, I, I, and I believe, I believe for Christians, I don't believe that it is ever our, our option. We have no right to turn to that spirit. And so what am I left with? Because I have to have comfort. I have to have relief. Where would I find it? It drives me into my room. I close the door. I get on my belly before God and I cry out to him. Because I have no place else to go. I've got to turn to the one true God. And now that pain actually causes me to grow deeper in the Lord. So many of us are short-circuiting it with alcohol or drugs or pornography or using some kind of vile spirit to find comfort in our lives when we should let the pain drive us to God. 
a num- several years ago now, my son was over playing basketball in Yakima at the Sun Dome in a tournament. And in the middle of this thing, some very terrible news came to him. Man, I, I you know, I was praying because he's over with a team, you know, far, far away. And I'm thinking, oh boy, what's he going to turn to with this pain in his heart? Because what do you think I'm worried about? I'm worried he's going to go out and get a drink. He never ha- has, to my knowledge, I, but I didn't want him to do that. When he came home, I, I prayed for him, you know, a lot. And when he came home, I said, what did you do with, with that? How did you process it? And, he, and, and I said, my concern is that you know, I don't want you to turn into this other stuff. He says, no, Dad. He said, I, he said, it crossed my mind. But he says, I knew I couldn't do that. He says, I went out and I walked along the Yakima River and I spoke in tongues. And I went, yes. <laughs> Be- because he turned to his God. Where you turn in your pain, where you turn for protection, where you turn for provision, where you turn for, pro- for, for, for purpose, where you look to, that's your real God. And he says, I will not, I'm a jealous God, you may not have more than one. Only me. In the first two commandments, the Lord says we can have either him as our God or demons, basically. But we can't have both. We make the choice situation by situation and day by day. This isn't just a matter of did you carve, you know, a telephone pole into an idol and put it in your living room and, and burn incense to it. That's not the point. It's where does the heart go? And he watches those things. I'll tell you what the worst God of all is. It's us. Self-righteousness and condemnation flow from when we look to ourselves to provide our own righteousness. I think there's not a person who hasn't struggled with the temptation of other gods. All of us do. I do, certainly. Every one of us. It's a choice we make over and over again. To serve the one true living God. To fall in his arms. To come to him in our moment of pain and need. But here's the one danger. The the dangerous one. If I forget the work of Jesus Christ. And if I forget his mercy. And if I forget the grace that's provided in him. I can become very condemned. And I can feel like it's hopeless. Because I'm not able to live the kind of life I ought to live. That's. It's true, you aren't able to live entirely the kind of life you're supposed to live. But today I want to announce to you something. All you have to do is repent. All you have to do is turn your heart to Jesus Christ again. And we do it over and over again. We come back to him over and over again. And you and I can confess all that's in our heart, anything we, where we've, we've seen ourselves turn to other things and say, oh Lord, forgive me. And he will. He will. And he'll wash us clean. The only person that's in real danger is the one who's self-righteous. 
And that's the person who trusts themselves as their own God and says, you know, I'm going to live so well and I'm going to handle life so well that I don't need Jesus. I don't need his forgiveness. I'm fine the way I am. You're not fine the way you are. You're not fine at all the way you are. No human on earth is fine the way they are. And when you finally see that, you're ready to be saved. And so today I invite you, if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, if you've never confessed your sins openly, this is a safe place to do it. You can now safely pour out your sin, not play games or justify yourself anymore. But simply say, I've done this stuff. God already knows it anyhow. And then say, Lord, I repent of it. I want to love you. I want to be single-hearted and single-minded with you. Forgive me for turning to other things. And then you can just say, but Jesus has died for me. His body was broken. His blood was shed for me. I believe that. And then what God does is cover you over with the goodness of Jesus. Just covers your whole life with his purity. So that when God looks at you, all he sees is the righteousness of Christ. This is the gospel. Not that we get our lives together, our act together. Yes, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we're, we're improving and growing. Hallelujah. Our neighbors and our spouses are grateful. But we'll not get it together to such an extent, this side of heaven, that we don't constantly, daily, need the finished work of Jesus Christ to cover us. But the power of the blood never runs out. And that covenant of ours never grows weary. And so today I invite you, confess your sins to him. Don't play games. Don't hide them. Just tell him. And say, Lord, I'm sorry I fell in love with another lover. I trusted another source. I'm so sorry. But I'm coming back to you to love you, to trust you. You're my provider. You're my protector. You're my comfort. You're my reason for living. Whatever it is, just tell him. He washes us clean, fills us afresh with the Holy Spirit, and walks with us through the next stage. That's the gospel. That's how come we're surviving, is we have constant grace from Jesus Christ. Amen? Holy Spirit, we ask you now to come and just shine your light on whatever you need. Where have we turned to other lovers? Where have we turned our hearts away and trusted other sources where it should have been God. Forgive us for that. We do repent freely and openly, unafraid, not out of indifference, but out of just knowledge that the grace of Jesus Christ will cover. Thank you, Lord Jesus. You have already died for everything we've done. In fact, you've died for everything we haven't done yet. We praise you and honor you for your great salvation. Without you, without your mercy, Without this new covenant, we would not make it. But with you, we indeed will. We indeed are loved moment by moment. So thank you for the freedom of lifting our sin from us now and washing us clean. And we want you to bless us generation after generation. We want the blessing of God over our households and our families, over our marriages, over our finances. We want the safety that comes from your mighty hand. In all things, we look to you as our God. You alone are God. There is no other. 
not in our lives. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.